isn't it interesting for almost all of us that we can have something embarrassing happen to us and then when a little bit of time passes, we can sit around with people and laugh about it, whether it's your spouse, a friend, a parent, or a child. Um, a little time makes a lot of things more palatable. Like for instance, for me, last October, my wife Tina and I, we went to Phoenix to visit our son Jake and his wife um, Hannah, had a great flawless trip, spent a week with them in Phoenix, it was great. On the way home, we're in the airplane. If you've ever flown and you've had a layover, we do the layover in Denver, and it dawns on me that I have not seen our car keys in like two or three days. And so I went through my backpack, it's not there. We get to Detroit where our final destination is, we get our luggage, and if you've ever done this, we got the luggage open, clothes on the floor of the airport, underwear, socks are flying, I mean, shampoo's going, we're looking for these keys, and they're nowhere to be found, and it is 1 a.m. in the morning in Detroit. Everything is shut down, and now listen, I have a wonderful wife, she's kind, she's beautiful, I love her, but she gave me that look, come on guys, and she was like, you're an idiot. That's, that's, that, that's what the look was, right? Because we were stranded there. Now, we found a way to get home. I had to come back the next day with an extra set of keys to get our car. And now we can look back and laugh at it. But in the moment, it was so embarrassing. And then it was just okay. Because now it's just a funny story we told. Um, I was going to tell you the embarrassing story of when I was a young pastor and I wore my microphone into the bathroom and left it on during the church service. And the congregants got way more than they expected that day. But I, wouldn't, I thought that was too embarrassing. I was going to tell you about the time I left my fly open through the whole service, but that was too embarrassing, so I went with the Travel to Phoenix Keys story. Anyway, so you, you know how that is. Most of us can call up those stories. Hard right turn, though. Aren't there some stories, aren't there some moments in our life that are so embarrassing? Maybe you would call them shameful. You hope no one ever talks about them. In fact, you hope no one ever finds out about them. In fact, if there is a God, and some of you are still trying to work through that, which is okay, that's why you came today. If there is a God, you hope he never finds out about him. Because it's so overwhelmingly painful to go back and think about it. In fact, if you could go back, this is what you would love to do. You'd go like to go back and unlive those moments, and you'd love to redo those moments. And my friends, today we're going to look at the life of Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, who had one of these moments. In fact, he had several of these moments. And the reason we know that he had these moments is because he decided to tell us about them. He wanted us to know about his most shameful and his most painful moment of our, his life. The things that he'd do, if he could go back and redo, he'd give anything to do that. But he came across a way to leave it in his past and not let his past remind him of just his failures and not let his past define him. And there's good news for you if you're here today and you carry around some stuff that literally you hope no one ever finds out about, you don't ever want to talk about, and you certainly don't want to relive I'm glad you're here. And you're surrounded by people, including the guy on stage, who's had some moments that feel so shameful. He would do anything to relive them. But there's a place to take them to find hope and comfort in them. We're in part seven of our series, You're Not Far, and we're talking about a story that should have died in the first century. We're talking about a story that should have died in Nero's Rome. It should have never made it out to 2,000 years later that we're still talking about, but it did. And the story, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. 
told by Simon Peter, who is one of Jesus' very close followers, through the eyes or the pen of John Mark. So Peter's been traveling around for 30 years. He's been telling the story of Jesus. And finally, Mark decides to write this down on paper. Now, this is really a big deal and huge for all of us, that Mark took these writings and they became the gospel of Mark. If you're familiar with the New Testament, it's like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is Mark writing it down, Peter dictating it. And then they took the four gospels and put it with some other letters together, and it became our New Testament. And then the New Testament was paired with the ancient Hebrew scriptures, and that's how we got our Bible. Now, you need to know this. I love the scriptures. I love the Bible. But some of you may have like some suspicions of the Bible, because you've read some stuff, or you heard some stuff, and you're freshman English, you know, class in college. And I would just encourage you to think of it this way if you struggle with the Bible as a whole. That when Mark wrote this, Mark, he wasn't writing the Bible. He didn't sit down, he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to sit down and write this book that will be the best-selling book of all time, read by more than anybody in the whole world. What he's doing is Mark was documenting Peter's experience with Jesus. And most likely they're sitting in a prison cell and Mark's just writing away and he's just trying to write everything Peter, you know, saw and heard and was a part of so we would have it for future generations. And Peter would say to Mark over and over that Jesus had a singular theme that he would say all the time. Mark, write this down because Jesus always was talking about that the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, which means you're not far no matter where you are in this world. Repent and believe the good news. And if you've missed this, this word repent means turn towards Jesus. Embrace this new king and this new kingdom that everything is going to change in our world. And here was the good news about this. This good news of this kingdom wasn't that you just get to go to heaven, although that's certainly part of the good news. The good news is that God has come close to you. And through Jesus, you can know what God is like. And this is a big deal because some of us have had really bad experiences with church and religious people and what we see with church stuff on TV. And maybe you have a bad view of God. And Peter would go, listen, you have to understand that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. That's what Jesus would say over and over. And it was outrageous, except Peter believed it was absolutely true. Don't miss Jesus. And my hope for everybody that came this morning or is watching online is that you would have the clearest picture of Jesus possible as we walk through the end of this series. So throughout the series, we've been looking at this map. Jesus had been up in Caesarea Philippi. He'd made his way down to Galilee and then down to Jericho, all the way down to Jerusalem. Now, he's been in Jerusalem for just a little while, and he is driving the religious leaders crazy because he would teach things that they couldn't refute and when they got into arguments they couldn't argue with him or stay on track with him because he was so brilliant of course he is he's Jesus and Passover came and Passover was this amazing Jewish holiday that they celebrated and remembered when God led the Jewish people out of Egypt and this is what happened was Jesus celebrated Passover with his best friends we read about this last week He said, while they're eating, Jesus took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take it. This is my body. Now, they had no idea what he was talking about, but you may know this. He was talking about his broken body that would be torn to shreds just a few days later. We wish Peter would have given us more details, but he doesn't. And Peter says, write this down, Mark. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. But after they drank from it, 
Just so you know, Jesus said, this is my blood. The blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And that meant there would be an agreement between God and mankind, God and people. That they could be close. But they weren't looking for a covenant. They were looking for a king with a sword and an army. Someone to wipe Rome off the map. Now, while this is happening, Peter recounts that Jesus is disturbed. I mean, there's something heavy going on. And Jesus leads them to this garden to pray. And as Jesus is praying and they're sleeping and there's this mess in the distance, in the dark. There's torches and there's soldiers. And there's Judas leading these soldiers to Jesus. And Judas approaches Jesus and kisses him. Because the kiss was to say, this is the one you want to capture. And in that mess, Peter pulls out a sword. And he just lops off the ear of one of the soldiers. There's a theory that says Judas was swinging, or Peter was swinging at Judas and missed. Caught the soldier's ear and cut it off. And Jesus, he, it's crazy, he slapped that ear back on and he healed him. And then they led Jesus away. And Peter says this. And again, this is where Mark probably turned to Peter and said, Peter, you sure you want me to write this stuff down? And Peter goes, you have to. And Peter said, everyone, including me, deserted him and fled. Because in that moment, we believed that the dream was over. The king we expected was not going to happen. The Messiah we wanted, you know, he had dissolved and becoming a prisoner to some temple guards. There's no kingdom. It's obvious this was a fail in this moment. And Peter would have said in that moment, God is not near. God is not here. Now, what happens next? There's so much detail, and it's so interesting that if you kind of dig in a little bit, you might ask, how does Peter know all these stories to tell Mark, all these different accounts between Jesus and the different people he ran into on the way to the cross? Well, one of the explanations is this, that after the crucifixion and after the resurrection of Jesus and in the years to come, many of these people that persecuted Jesus became followers of Jesus, and they became Peter's spiritual brothers and sisters in Jesus, and they had conversations about it. Well, these followers got together and they told each other their stories. That's how it happened. Now, I want to tell you how this story ends up and how all these people became followers of Jesus, but you got to come back next week for Easter to hear that because it's a really amazing thing. And as Ryan said, bring somebody with you next week. It's going to be an amazing week next week. But before we get to that, we got to go through this journey to the terrible, awful, painful, glorious cross. So they captured Jesus, and Peter recounts that they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and to the teachers of the law. They came together. Just a side note, these people and this list did not get along ever. But somehow, in their hatred and frustration and anger towards Jesus, they united against Jesus. And Peter tells us that he followed him at a distance, right near the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards, and warmed, warmed himself at the fire. And I think this is just a little bit of a nuance as Peter tells the story, like, yeah, this is kind of where I was going. Jesus is getting tried falsely, and I'm, I'm cuddling up to the fire where there's comfort. There's hope around the fire, and Jesus is about to lose it all. And again, I imagine Mark said, listen, okay, Peter, the next part's really ugly. Do you want me to put this down? To which Peter would say, listen, you have to put it down, because in this story there's no heroes except Jesus, all of us failed. But I might have been the biggest failure. The chief priest, he tells us, 
And the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. They brought all these witnesses around because many, were told, testified falsely against him. But their statements did not agree. And eventually this high priest, the guy that has all this authority, he thinks he knows everything more than anybody else. He's just so angry and he gets in Jesus' face. Probably the sweat pouring out of his you know, forehead and beady eyes and spitting in Jesus' face. And he said, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus, for whatever reason, he remained silent and he didn't give any answer. And this just drove them crazy because these people, these religious leaders, were the most powerful people in the Jewish community. They had all the power and all the authority over the Jewish people, and Jesus was not putting up with it. This Nazarene day worker, carpenter, self-appointed rabbi is not showing them the respect that they want, and he will not answer it. And finally, this chief priest, he just absolutely loses it. And we're told, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And this moment is so significant. It it might be the most significant moment up to this time in history because Jesus' life hung in the balance. And the truth is, Peter's life hung in the balance. And your life hung in the balance. And so did mine. Because Jesus makes this decision, and he looks at him, and he goes, I am. I am the son, the special one, anointed of God. And in this moment, Jesus condemns himself. This is a powerful moment. Because next, what happens with the beatings and the crucifixion, it's like Jesus just pours it all on himself. He could have made the choice. He could have made the choice to rip that cross to shreds. He could have made the choice to call a thousand legions of angels to his aid. The man who could control the winds and the waves and multiply food and cast out demons, he just decided to say, I am who you say I am. And it sentenced himself to the most grueling death a man or woman could imagine. And it just infuriated the religious leaders because they tore their clothes, which was a sign of anger and frustration. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all, all of them, condemned him as worthy of death. And this is where it starts to get really ugly. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists. And they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. Now listen, if you've been around church for any length of time, you have probably heard this like I have heard this. I've heard this almost my whole life. But we got to pause for a minute because we just brushed by this like it's so easy for me to do. It's easy to miss what's going on here. I mean, these men decided to take all their frustration, all their frustration with Rome, all their frustration with each other, all their frustration with their own failures, all their frustration with Jesus, and maybe all their frustration with God. And they just start taking it out on Jesus. And it's easy to blow by this, but maybe this lasted a half hour. Maybe this lasted two or three hours. But they beat Jesus until they were not so frustrated anymore. And this is where Peter steps in. And he just decides to tell a truth about himself that's just almost unimaginable. He'd be this forthright. This is so, like, unbelievably 
true that it must be true. Because why would you make something like this up, what Peter's about to say next? And again, I think Mark said, Peter, do you want to write? Do you want me to write this down? Because it's going to make you look really bad for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And I think Peter must have thought, yep, you got to write it down. Because if people don't understand how far I strayed, how sinful I was, how unloyal I was to my friend, my rabbi, and eventually my savior, they will not know the depth and the height and the width of God's amazing love for me when he decided to bring me back because I did what I believed at the time was an unpardonable sin. And Peter tells a story. He says, one of the servant girls, the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him, and this gal turned or leaned in and said, you also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. The man that said he would stick with Jesus to the bitter end. The man that looked Jesus straight in the eye and said, when everyone else forsakes you, when everyone else leaves you, I will be there to the end. And a middle school girl accuses him of just knowing and being with Jesus, and he denied it. Well, Peter, if you read this story, he gets up and must have wanted to get away from the fire where there wasn't so much light and hang in the shadows so no one else recognizes him. But this young gal, she follows him. And she said again to those standing around, this is one of them. And if you read the text, Peter denied it again. And now everybody's staring at Peter. Everybody's eyes are on Peter. And she said, for the third time, surely you are one of them. You are a Galilean. We recognize your accent. Your face is familiar. We are convinced that you are one of Jesus' followers. And Peter, in that moment, reacted this way. He began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And for a third time, he denied having any kind of connection, relationship with Jesus. And then, as you know, many of you know, the rooster crows. And Jesus' prediction, after Peter said, I will stick with you to the very end, and Peter said, no, you won't. You'll deny me by the time the rooster crows. This happens. Mark, write this down. People have got to know what I did. Because the next part's really important. Peter heard that rooster crow and remembered Jesus' words, and he broke down and he just sobbed. He just wept. And he would have given anything in that moment of complete and utter, utter sinful and failure to go back and unlive that moment and redo that moment. But you know this, and I know this. You can't go back, can you? You can't unlive a moment you've already done, and you can't relive it. And you can't undo it. Well, they take Jesus to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea and essentially the mayor of Jerusalem. See, the Jewish people, they didn't have the authority and the power through legal ways to kill someone. They wanted Jesus' dead. And so they took Jesus to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate loved these moments. Because when the Jewish men, especially the religious leaders, would come groveling for a favor, he could like exercise and flex his muscle. Like, hey, we have control over you. And this is one of those moments of power. And so they approach Pilate. And when Peter tells us that the chief priest accused him, Jesus, of many things. So Pilate asked him, asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? In other words, defend yourself. Say something. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now this is kind of interesting. 
And I think Pilate was amazed because in these kind of moments, men would beg and beg and plead with all of their might. And they usually wouldn't ask to be freed because that was impossible. You don't get freed if you're a Jewish person under Pilate's thumb. What they begged for and what they pleaded for was a quick death, was an immediate death. You know, take a soldier's sword and just plunge it through my neck so I can just die. Don't put me through all the things that Romans loved to do to people, just a quick death. But Jesus didn't do that. So Pilate, trying to appease this bloodthirsty crowd of Jewish people who had been stirred up by the religious leader, he had Jesus flogged. Now, we've talked about flogging in the past, so if you're new, let me just give you a quick summary. Flogging was essentially the process of removing almost all the flesh from a man's back until bone was apparent. Most people died from flogging. And Pilate must have thought, I'm going to flog Jesus. I can't find anything wrong with him. So hopefully this is enough to appease this bloodthirsty crowd who wanted him dead. And after he flogged him, this is what he says. He said, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? I mean, I flogged him. He's going to die anyway. He cannot live through this kind of beating. And they hated the fact that Pilate called Jesus the king of the Jews because they didn't want him to be the king. They wanted another kind of king. He didn't fit their bill. So it infuriated the crowd even more. And Jesus just stood there on your behalf and my behalf and surrendered himself to this process. And the crowd, they just simply screamed out, crucify him. And they shouted with all they have. And ultimately, Pilate, he surrenders. He gives in to this crowd, just trying to keep the peace. And the soldiers, they led Jesus away. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. Now, this is kind of an important thing because these soldiers most likely weren't like true Roman soldiers. They weren't part of the Roman legion. They were um, auxiliary soldiers that had been gathered up in the surrounding areas. And this is an important note because those soldiers who were not Jewish but from, were from the vicinity, they would have hated all the Judeans. They'd have been frustrated with them for the years of you know, tension between them. And now here's this Jew that thinks he's a king, and now they get to bring all their anger to the table. It just heaps on Jesus. And this is what Peter tells us, that they put a purple robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on him, and they... They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. You know, I I wonder sometimes when Jesus measured the beatings versus the humiliation, how they weighed against each other, because it was just relentless on both ends. And again and again, they struck him on the head and on the staff, and they spit on him. In other words, all the frustration they'd ever felt towards anyone in the world Jesus was a recipient of. And I imagine they hit him and they beat him and their hands hurt so bad they could not hit him and beat him anymore. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, most likely after he had congealed to his open, bloody back. They ripped it from his flesh just to open every wound back up. And they put his own clothes on him, on his bloody back, and they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha. And this next simple line, I just can't overemphasize what it would have meant to people 2,000 years ago. They brought him to Golgotha and they crucified him. 
Now, again, if you grew up in church, maybe you grew up coming to the Easter service once a year, which is great. If you're like me, we hear that. Oh, yeah, the crucifixion. We sing songs about this. We talk about this. We kind of romanticize it. I mean, we, we see the movies, we read the tales, and it feels heavy, but we don't have any idea. In the first century when Jesus, was, or when Peter was telling the story of Jesus, and he just said, and they crucified him, people would have heard that, and their hearts would have just sank, because they just knew. They just knew there's no romanticizing this story. There's no, no feeling like emotionally good about this story because it was so painful and so awful and the torture that went on with it for days and days and days was absolutely horrible. And here's what's so interesting. In this moment when God was most glorified, you and I, if we saw it, would have been most horrified. That when God was most glorified, we would have been most horrified. We would have turned away. We would have ran the other way. We would have done something to get away from the gruesomeness, but not the crowd. For whatever reason, they'd seen it enough or they were just so angry, it overcame their whatever they're wanting to get away from it. They start to mock Jesus even more. They say, see, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And then they said something that Peter, looking back, probably thought they had no idea how significant this next statement is. Because they said, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. And for 30 years, Peter's been telling this story. Yeah, he's hanging on the cross. He's about to die. And they said, you you save others, but you can't save yourself. And looking back, Peter had this advantage, and this is why he would say things like this, that if he'd saved himself, if he decided to put his own needs ahead of everyone else, he would have been unable to save others. If he would have saved himself, he would have been unable to save me. If he would have saved himself, he would have been unable to save you and save the world, but they weren't finished yet. They said, let the Messiah, this king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and we may believe. And I I think when Peter said, Mark, write this down. They said that they may see and they may believe. He looked back and he thought, this is so significant. Seeing and believing is everything. And two days later, I would see something, Peter would say, that made me believe for the rest of my life. They're going to probably march me to my death in just a little while. But what I saw is why I believe and I will not stop believing. Now, here's another interesting part of this. If you know the story of Jesus throughout his life, he did some amazing things, like he controlled nature. He controlled the wind and the waves. You know, he brought people back to life. He multiplied food. I mean, he had power over everything. But hanging on the cross, it's like nature responded to his agony and pain. And we're told by Peter, at noon, darkness came over the whole land. It it was like Jesus' creation mourned over what was happening to him. Like it responded in agony that the creator is being destroyed on this cross. It's overwhelming. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. He said, my God, my God. And then he asked a question that in that moment, no one had an answer for. In that moment, no one knew the response to what Jesus asked. Because he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
No one knew. But 30 years of Peter telling the story and recounting it and seeing and believing, he knew the answer on the other side of the crucifixion, why the father had forsaken his son, because he wrote a letter to some Christians years later. And it answers the question, why did God forsake his son? And this is what Peter would write to another group of people, that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God placed your sins. God placed my sins. God placed Peter's sins on the shoulders and the back and the head of his son, Jesus. In other words, the father withdrew from the son so the father could draw near to us. Is that not the most amazing thing you've ever heard? I mean, I think about this. I think about my children that I love with all of my heart. I'm not sacrificing my children for anybody. All of you collectively don't come ahead of my children. And God the Father put his perfect son on the cross for all of us. And he would have done it for any of us. And in that moment, Peter understood. This is why God forsaken Jesus, for the rest of the world. And Jesus, he died. And he died alone. And we know that because Peter tells us that with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. His rabbi, his friend, breathed his last breath. Now what we don't know, or what Peter didn't know in that moment is at the same time there was like divine vandalism going on in Jerusalem at the temple. This is what happened in that moment. Again, Peter wouldn't have known this till later. But he tells us that the curtain in that moment of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And maybe you don't know the whole story of the temple. The temple for Jewish people is a place where God dwelled and there was a couple huge massive curtains that separated God from mankind, and you had to be almost in a perfect place to even get close to that area. It's, it's complicated, but this curtain represented God is there and we're way over here. And in that moment when Jesus died, that curtain tore into, not from the bottom up, from the top to the bottom, as if God reached down with his hands and he ripped it apart, as if to say, this is amazing to me, there's no more separation between God and man. I'm inviting you to a relationship with your heavenly Father. That Peter might say it this way, that the covenant between God and the human race was officially ratified in that moment. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's invited to be a part. Even me, Peter would say, as disloyal and sinful and as treacherous and lying as I had been, I did not get what I deserved. I got something I didn't deserve, and that was God's forgiveness and his love and his grace. And Peter might say this, this is why I wrote this. Because it was for me as much as anybody else that he bore my sins in his body on the cross. And he included himself, he included you, and he included me. And here, here's the challenge for this for some of us. Some of you might go, yeah, I'm not, okay, listen, I, I get it. And Okay, Peter's stuff was bad, but I've done some stuff that I'll never tell anybody about. And if anybody found, finds out, I don't know what's going to happen. And God would never want me. And Peter would sit down with you. And he'd lean in close and goes, listen, you did not give up the son of God to a bunch of unfaithful religious leaders. I did. 
And Jesus welcomed me back that there is face-to-face forgiveness and pardon for all of your sin. And that's why Jesus' message was so simple. That Jesus' message was the time has come. And maybe for you, this is you. Today's the day. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. That means you're not far right now in this moment. Repent. Turn towards Jesus. And believe this good news that he loves you and he died for you. And I think Peter would say, if you saw what I saw, you would believe and you would experience the love that I believed. And that's the invitation. But you got to believe and repent. Because this is what God is like. God is a good father who gives everything for his children and reconciles him. And you don't have to let your past define you. You don't have to let your past remind you that you can be a child of God. Now, next Sunday, we're going to tie this whole thing together with the resurrection on Easter. And it's going to be incredible. But I thought before we head out today, it's worth thinking about this. Because I imagine a few of you came here today because you don't know what to do with the mistakes, the missteps. I mean, if we were really honest, the sins that we have in our life. And Peter would tell you, listen, it's time. If you need a place to take all that, to turn to Jesus. And it's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. You just say, Jesus, I believe that when you died on the cross, you died for my sin. And I'm putting my trust in you for my forgiveness today. And I'm giving you my life. And you're going to mess it up, and you're not going to get it all right, and you're not going to be perfect every day, but it's a following of your Savior, Jesus. And i got a question for you. What would it look like? What would it look like for you to march into eternity knowing you're absolutely forgiven, absolutely pardoned of your sin? But as important, what would it look like for you to march in tomorrow morning waking up going, listen, I have been a mess, but I am a forgiven mess, and I'm a child of God. What would it look like for you to be able to forgive other people and love other people? Because that's what that kind of forgiveness compels us to do. And I would just say this, if you're here and you've never accepted that, I would invite you to accept that. Now, if you choose not to, that's a personal decision you get to make. But if you choose to accept God's forgiveness, I think it'll change your life. Maybe for you, you've followed Jesus for a while and you've kind of forgotten about that forgiveness thing. And you're weighed down with your own shameful, heavy guilt. What would it look like for you to go, Jesus, I believe, but I'm making sure you have all my mess today. And you're reassured of who you are as a child of God. Well, in just a second, I'm just going to invite you to pray with me. And if today is your day to do that, I would love for you just to tell God, I'm yours today. Forgive me. And listen, if you're not ready, make sure you come back next Sunday. Keep coming back. We'll keep figuring it out together. But if you're ready to accept for the forgiveness that you desperately need, just pray with me this way. Heavenly Father, I put my trust in what Jesus did on the cross for me. And I fully accept that he bore my sin on his back, shoulders, and head for me. Forgive me, Jesus. I put my faith and trust in you, and I'm going to follow you the best that I can as my Savior and my Lord. My life is yours today. Thank you for what you've done. 
thank you for what you went through that I could know you personally. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. My friends, I think Peter would say to you, if you put your trust in Jesus today or any other day, you can walk out of those doors with confidence, knowing that you're a child of God and you are absolutely forgiven because God loves you.